Islanders a special show tonight. Bloody Murders Barney and Tara invited me to be part of their show while I was down in Melbourne for the Australian Podcast Awards. So grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Bloody Murder and True Crime Island bringing you the story of Lenny McPherson. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. Time for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now car with his hands for a coffee table with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub of face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who's, who's life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone. There'd be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. I'm Tara Saraban. And I'm Cambo. And we're doing some bloody murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia and indeed around the globe. What will we be covering this week, Barney and Tara? Well, we've got a a pretty sweet Aussie case to blend in with our awesome special guest here, Cambo Ford from True Crime Island. Yay! So Lenny McPherson was one of the most powerful and scary Australian career criminals of all time. He controlled much of Sydney's organised crime activity from the 1950s right through to the mid-1990s and has been described as more cunning than a shithouse rat. (laughs) Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to do a little bit of listener feedback. Would you like to start us off there, Tara? I would indeed. Mandy Minder shared a link in our Facebook group to an article and she prefaced it, so, um... This is one of the rare instances in my life where the how is more confusing than the why. The headline read, Woman found with loaded gun inside vagina at traffic stop. Yeah. Well, I mean, a (laughs) well, uh, why was it there? But also how and how did they find it at a traffic stop? I guess you... Maybe it went off. Oh, no. Oh, no. Robert Horton put on our Facebook group also, I've been told I'm going to hell for my excessive use of the word fuck. I have rented a bus if any of you fuckers need a ride. Oh, well, a lot of people have jumped on board. We all need a ride. I'm going to be sitting at the back of that fucking bus with uh, all the bad fuckers. Yeah, well, that's all of us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Eric Gifford commented, Bloody Murder Pod needs to start a dating site with Russian Tara and sexy Hey Baby Barney. As plenty of fish is taken, I suggest plenty of fuck yous. I'm thinking plenty of fucks. Anyway, he said, then we'll all have another place to cuss at each other and laugh. And we have to let Cambo in. Yeah. He's good at explicit rants, possibly the king. Absolutely mm. the king. 
How about plenty of boom fuckalungas? <laughs> boom fuckalunga. So James Fiorelli put a meme up in the Facebook group. I hate getting crap for wearing Daisy Dukes. It's nice out and I like showing off my body. I can do without the rude remarks like your legs are hairy and your balls are falling out. <laughs> oh, God. oh, It's so good to have Cambo in the house, oh, don't you think? It really is. <laughs> Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We have some new ones this week, so thank you to Jimmy Cockwaffle Davis from Hatcliffe in Bristol, and I'm, uh, his soccer team won. His football team won this week, and he's been getting hammered. So. Oh, is that why he posted that happy hammer yeah, pic? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Go, he's Jimmy. Awesome. He's awesome. We'd also like to thank Angel Cantwell from San Antonio, Texas. And John Venasia from Colorado Springs. And also Marissa Sharples. And Mad Chatlane. Thank you so much for joining the team. Oh, absolutely. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Don't search Patreon because we're not there. No, no. Patrons have access to over a dozen other episodes, early access to some of our regular episodes, and all levels receive free stickers and badges. Okay, boom fuckalunga, let's get murdery. Hooray. Let's do it. Lenny McPherson was nicknamed Sydney's Mr Big of organised crime. He was feared by his competition and greenlit by the corrupt cops supporting him. His criminal activities included robbery, theft and extortion rackets, illegal gambling, sly grog shops, prostitution, drug dealing and, of course, lots and lots of murder. After his control of Australia's East Coast was absolute, being the greedy, psychotic fuck that he was, he extended his influence to Southeast Asia and the United States because international shit shows are the best shit shows. Damn straight. Leonard Arthur McPherson was born in the inner Sydney suburb of Balmain, New South Wales, on May 19, 1921. He was the tenth child of metal worker William I don't know what a franger is, McPherson, and his wife, Nellie. His family were honest and hardworking, but this apple fell very far from the tree. If the school of hard knocks was his kindergarten, then the school of pinching shit and punching dudes was his primary school. He attended Birchgrove Primary School for a bit, but book learning was not Lenny's thing. He was such a self-possessed tough nut that he dropped out of primary school and didn't even set foot in a high school. He figured he could learn everything he needed on the rough streets of inner-city Sydney. Lenny's first run-in with the cops came at the tender age of 11 when he was convicted of stealing and he was placed on a 12-month good behaviour bond. 18 months later, in June 1934, he faced court on another stealing charge and his bond was extended. A week later, after he was convicted on two more charges of stealing, the courts were getting tired of his shit and committed Lenny to a bout of incarceration in the Mount Penang Juvenile Detention Centre on the New South Wales Central Coast. Here, Lenny was bashed and sexually assaulted dozens of times during his first taste of captivity. Unfortunately, it was not uncommon for boy offenders to suffer violence and sexual abuse at the hands of fellow inmates. When he was finally released, his father, William, found him a job as a driller on the dockyard where he worked. This was during World War II when all the young and able-bodied men were being called up to fight. 
Working there enabled Lenny to avoid conscription as being a dock worker was a protected occupation. In 1940, 19-year-old Lenny married his sweetheart, Dawn Joy Allen, in a small ceremony at Roselle in New South Wales. She was only 16 years old and would have had no idea of the shit that was going to go down being married to this guy. You know what Michael Caine would have said? She was only 16 years old. That is exactly what he would have said. (laughs) Did being in love cure Lenny of his criminal ways or did he just get better at swiping stuff? as during this period the only bleep on his record was a huge string of traffic fines for offences like speeding, illegal parking and driving an unlicensed car. By 1946, Lenny was up to no good again. His first criminal charges as an adult were for possessing and receiving stolen goods. He was found guilty and sentenced to 12 months hard labour at Long Bay Jail, which was a particularly violent and hostile place to be in the 1940s. Later that year, Lenny was briefly transferred to a low-security prison farm at Glen Innes in northern New South Wales. But six weeks later, he was transferred to the maximum security Grafton Jail because of his unsatisfactory and unruly behaviour. His wife Dawn appealed for him to be transferred back to Sydney to serve out his term at Long Bay. Her requests were initially denied, but after a few months, Lenny was transferred back to Long Bay to serve out the rest of his sentence. He was paroled on Christmas Eve 1946, having served only 10 months of his 18-month sentence. Having spent time in the big house, Lenny was a changed man and he had difficulty readjusting to civilian life. Unable to cope, he began drinking heavily and abused Dawn both verbally and physically. He also started to step out on her, banging a conga line of other women. One of Lenny's mates was Surrey Hills gangster William Joey Holbone. Holbone is reputed to have committed many underworld murders in Sydney. After Holbone was arrested for a robbery, he accused Lenny of fizzing to the police about his whereabouts and in an act of revenge, Holbone's gang pack-raped one of Lenny's mistresses who was pregnant to him. I'm going to take a little time out right here, okay? If you're angry at Lenny for something Lenny did, why don't you deal with that with Lenny? Let's not go raping any women. Yeah, not cool. Not cool at all. She didn't have anything to do with that shit. That's just fucking stupid. So as we know, Cambo, Lenny was a bit of a dog who had a habit of fizzing on fellow inmates while in prison. It was to gain favours and get sweet with the guards. This continued after his release, as Lenny began cultivating friendships with some police officers by informing against his competition or those who pissed him off. Lenny McPherson was widely known at the time as Lenny the Pig and Lenny the Squealer. And Lenny the Squirter? (laughs) I believe Squirter was on the table, yes. Yeah, he squirted information. Out of every orifice. Yes. On June the 24th, 1947... Lenny faced a minor charge of using indecent language and was fined two pound. Fuck that. I'll tell on you, cunt, he said at the time. (laughs) I'm sure he did. (laughs) By 1951, 30-year-old Lenny was completely obsessed with the American gangster Al Capone, devouring anything he could read about old fish lips and trying to emulate the fat-ass gangster. Do you think he had like an Al Capone-themed birthday party with an Al Capone-shaped cake? Well, that'd be pretty cool. Do you think that he had like posters of Al Capone on his wall that he used to kiss goodnight to, you know, until he like wore the lips off one of them? 
You mean like your River Phoenix poster? Yeah, I may be bringing this back to me. Yeah, yeah. And I tried to draw the mouth back on with brown pencil, but it was not convincing. And my older brother pointed it out quite regularly. This was only last week, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was today. (laughs) Lenny even made a trip to the United States in August 1951 using a forged passport. It was on this visit that Lenny was introduced to members of the Chicago mob. These contacts would come in handy later in Lenny's criminal career. But Lucky Lenny was not his nickname, and his fake passport was discovered. He was charged with forging and uttering. Really? That's the thing? That's the charge. Forging and uttering. Yeah, possibly, oh, fuck, I'm nicked. (laughs) The maximum penalty for forgery of a passport at the time was 10 years. But Lenny, now having some connected friends in the US, was fined only £100. Later that year, Lenny was in hot soup again, charged with consorting with known criminals. However, he escaped imprisonment. His conviction was recorded, although no sentence was imposed. But Lenny the Squealer's luck was finite. In late 1953, he was arrested while trying to break into an office in central Sydney. He was found guilty of breaking and entering with intent to steal and being in possession of housebreaking implements, including explosives. It's rumoured that there was a safe in the office that he wanted to blow open. He got sentenced to three years in prison for that one. Oh, they don't. They frown on exploding safes. Yeah, they really do. If it's anything to do with money, it's like we're going to put you away for a long time. But, mm. you know, do something sexual to a woman or a child and eh, whatever. Well, Tara, during his time in the cooler, he was busted for attempting to pass a secret letter out of jail and having contraband in his possession. But it didn't seem to affect his sentence because after two short years, Lenny was paroled in October 1955. To satisfy his parole conditions, he needed legitimate employment. So Lenny established his infamous Lenny Motel. He built the establishment with one of his brothers. It was essentially just a group of small rooms on the roof of a private car park in Balmain. Here, Lenny created a safe house for crims who needed to lie low. He put himself on the payroll at a salary of £20 per week, and for the next 20 years, he was able to cover his criminal activities by saying that the Lenny Motel was his only source of income. Yeah, right. Yeah, for fucking sure. By the end of the 1950s, Lenny worked hard to consolidate his power and influence, and by the late 1960s, he had established an extensive network of organised crime operations which were supported and protected by corrupt police and public officials. He had gained his king of crime crown in the seedy Sydney underworld through systematic violence and intimidation, and of course, making his living criminal rivals into dead criminal rivals. That's how you do it. But the crowning turd in the Lenny water pipe was his relationships with corrupt police officers, such as Detective Inspector Ray Gunner Kelly. These friendships morphed into tit-for-tat arrangements. Corrupt police got Lenny the squealer as an informant and brutal enforcer, while Lenny got these dirty coppers' information to bust his competition, in turn protecting his own organisation. I guess it is kind of a good business model, but how corrupt is this shit? Oh, yeah. Squirting information. Oh, left, right and centre. Getting cops to, to bust your, your bad competition. This is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Barney's, I'm saying. Barney's yeah, sentence. No. Oh, it's a bit fucked, isn't it's it? It's a bit fucked, isn't it? We'll just, we'll just cut that bit out. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? 
1959 murder of criminal Joseph Hackett is a perfect example of this arrangement. The body of Joseph George Hackett was found bloodied and bullet-riddled in a lane in the inner-city suburb of Leichhardt on July 27, 1959. Lenny and his longtime bodyguard, Snobby Rayner, were charged with the murder. During interviews with police, Lenny was even told who'd informed on him. What? The copper investigating this case happened to be Detective Inspector Ray Gunner Kelly. Ah, there's a surprise. Lenny at first claimed that he'd been visiting his mother in the hospital when the murder took place, but his alibi did not stand up as everyone knew he despised his mother. He was charged with murder and remanded to Long Bay Jail. During the hours he spent in a cell, he dictated a letter and then used his influence to persuade a prison officer to have it smuggled out and delivered to an associate. Although not written in Lenny's own hand, as he probably didn't know how to write, the letter was signed Lenny and the contents, well, they were quite damning. The letter said that Hackett had been killed because he had a big mouth. Oh, you mean like a fizz gig? Oh, well, hello, that's a fizz gig calling a fizz gig a fizz gig, isn't it? It really is. And that Lenny had made a deal with Detective Ray Kelly. It outlined their plan to avoid prosecution, described the scheme to fabricate alibis and gave details about bribing two witnesses by offering them £1,500 to leave the country. When Lenny faced committal court later, in spite of the seriousness of the charge against him and his massive criminal record, Magistrate Roy Harvey released him on a £1,000 bail and told him he must report to police three times a week until the case began. He also gave him a packed lunch, a puppy dog and a little kiss on the cheek. You know, he was probably already seeing police three times a week. Well, you know? at long, least. long lunches in Chinese restaurants. Yeah, get yeah, chain, chain smoking, drinking schooners of beer. Uh-huh. So the hearing opened on September 21, 1959. But by this time, the two witnesses referred to in Lenny's letter had left the country. So the case was adjourned and Lenny, slippery bastard McPherson, was released on bail. Despite the two key witnesses vanishing and other witnesses changing their stories, the coroner found that there was a case to answer and Lenny was committed to stand trial in November 1959. Two days later, Justice Brereton released him on a £1,000 bail. You're really not meant to get bail in murder trials, are you? No, you're really not. No, not with a record like that. Unless you're like BFFs with some like corrupt cops, I guess. I guess it helps. Yeah, you know, tit for tat. All the tits and all the tats. Before the trial could go ahead, the matter was no-billed by State Attorney General Reg Downing. Years later, an anonymous barrister who claimed to have been privy to secretive arrangements between lawyers, police and politicians at the time said that Lenny had donated over £10,000 to Downing to assist in his decision-making process. <laughs> Lenny now had a green light from crooked cops to do what he pleased. From this point on, Lenny's influence over police, prison guards, lawyers, magistrates, politicians allowed him to literally get away with murder. Or should I say murder? Oh, if only Baz was here. He could say it for us. Murder. Oh, that was pretty. Like, he's getting, Cambo's getting murder. closer than us. Uh, in 1960, Lenny and his mate Rayner were charged with the attempted murder of SP bookie John Joseph Unwin. But really, the police were just going through the motions. 
The car ambush took place on a busy central Sydney street at about 8pm. Dozens of shots were fired between the two cars as they repeatedly rammed each other, but Unwin managed to return fire, wounding Rayner in the arm, and he escaped without injury. The charges against Lenny were quietly dropped some time later, mostly because John Unwin wouldn't squeal, so he's not like a fizz gig or nothing, and refused to cooperate with police. I doubt it would have helped even if he did. No. By the early 1960s, Dawn had had enough of Lenny using her as a punching bag. Yes! Also, everyone knew Lenny's marriage to Dawn had become a farce. It was no secret he had numerous mistresses and at least seven children by other women. Oh, but I heard he was a wonderful father. He pretty much ignored all those kids. You know what? Him ignoring them is probably a blessing because him paying them any kind of attention probably would have been just negative, violent attention. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The end of the marriage came to a head due to a particularly violent attack on Dawn in October 1960. After coming home after a long drinking session and finding that his dinner was not on the table, the horrible shit-stained Lenny savagely pistol-whipped his wife, threatened to kill her, and fired several shots into the food still cooking on the stove. (laughs) That's not how you get your dinner quicker, is it? What the fuck he shoot the dinner for? (laughs) (laughs) Classy as fuck. Classy as fuck. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, Dawn was rescued from this horrendous violence by her father and went to the police to try to charge her husband with attempted murder. However, this interview was attended by Detective Ray Kelly. Oh, that name sounds familiar. Yes, he would. He really would. And you know what? This is surprising. He persuaded her to drop the charges. What? Dawn then left Lenny, divorced him, signed over her share of their Gladesville home to him, remarried and left Sydney. Good for you, Dawn. You got out of that shit. She had a good life, apparently, once she got away from um, horrible Lenny. Yeah, well, there was no way of her having one while she was with him. So good work, woman. In May 1962, Lenny was arrested by two rookie detectives for consorting with known criminals, a charge which carried a potential sentence of six months in prison for someone with his record. However, the detectives received a radio order to release Lenny before their car even arrived at the station. The order had come from Detective Ray Gunner Kelly. Oh, my God. When are those two just going to get a room, Mm. huh? Lenny and Kelly sitting in a tree. (laughs) F-U-C-K. Oh, yeah. Fizz kicking and Uh, making out. Titting for tatting. (laughs) In July 1963, the violent asshole found love again. (laughs) 42-year-old Lenny married for the second time to Marlene Carol Gilligan who was 22 and didn't know better. On the night of his wedding, Lenny snuck out from his own wedding reception at Balmain and carried out the shocking murder of a rival crim, Robert James Pretty Boy Walker, at Randwick in Sydney's East. Well, he did have the perfect alibi, didn't he? He really did. Pretty Boy Walker was indeed handsome, but that didn't bother Lenny. (laughs) What made Lenny butt hurt was Pretty Boy was bragging of being the toughest man in Sydney. Whoa, but if that wasn't enough, he also bashed one of Lenny's best mates, the notorious Sydney criminal Stan Smith. Stan the Man Smith was one of the most legendary criminal enforcers in the Sydney underworld from the late 1950s through to the 1980s. Although he was one of the most prolific hitmen in Australian history, 
being responsible for at least 25 shootings and 15 murders. He only spent a very small amount of time in prison. He was a key figure in the Sydney drug trade, but he wasn't flashy about it, preferring to stay in the background. He was closely associated with big crim kingpins like Lenny and George Freeman. That's what you should do, Tara. You should not be so flashy. Yeah, really? Do you, yeah. Is, is the current, well, I'm wearing a suit, a tracksuit. Um, <laughs> is, is my flashy tracksuit offending you with its, like, awesome audaciousness? Uh, uh, un poco, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Pretty Boy had bashed Stan the man for assaulting a sex worker that we'll call Sally at a Woolloomooloo hotel. A few days later, Stan the man wanted revenge, so he gathered a posse and went to Pretty Boy's fuck pad in Paddington to sort him out. But Pretty Boy was ready for the Stan squad and drove them off by firing a barrage of rifle shots through his front door. Oh, he's not getting his bond back, is he? No, he's not. No. One shot wounded Stan the Man in his Stan the Man tits. <laughs> pretty Boy Walker was charged and he went to ground after the fracas. He may have been pretty, but smart he was not. He made the mistake of hiding out at the Randwick house of the sex worker that Stan had assaulted. <sighs> pretty Boy, come on. So guys, this is how it went down. On the evening of Lenny's wedding at around 6pm, Stan the Man received a call from Sally it seemed Pretty Boy's gallant defence of her was nothing compared to the power of Stan the Man and his wounded tits. <laughs> Stan informed Lenny, who explained to his new wife that he had business to take care of and he'd be back soon. Oh, Lenny. Oh, Lenny, it's our wedding reception. So the two men left the reception. They drove to the suburb of Kingsford, changed out of their suits, picked up a stolen car and drove it to the house where Pretty Boy was hiding. They waited until Pretty Boy left Sally's house at around 6.15pm, then tailed him as he walked down Allison Road in Ranwick on his way to a local pub. Pulling up alongside him, Lenny opened fire on Pretty Boy Walker at close range with an Owen submachine gun, hitting him six times and pretty much killing him instantly. Several shots also struck a parked car and a nearby fence. The car survived, but the fence died on its way to Fence Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Police were on the scene almost immediately, but Lenny and Stan the man had bounced and were in the wind. They dumped the stolen vehicle, got their own car, stashed the machine gun and changed back into their rented suits. They then dumped the clothes they'd worn during the shooting into the Parramatta River and returned to the wedding reception in time to do the Macarena. Yeah, that and the speeches. So we're back for the speeches. Yeah, it was actually kind of the perfect crime in a way. Well, the entire operation just took over half an hour. Balls the size of really big balls. (laughs) Balls! The ballsy nature of this brazen killing made front-page news and caused a sensation because of the fact it was the first underworld murder in Sydney involving the use of a machine gun. Let's add Trailblazer to Lenny's criminal resume. Champ! Journalists, politicians and citizens were shocked and appalled and demanded the police swing a swift and definitive hammer of justice on the perpetrators of this terrible crime. They needed a no-nonsense, street-smart cop who, like a dog with a bone, would be tenacious and never give up until justice had been served. So 
guess who they got to lead the investigation? Was it McGrath, the crime dog? No, Tara, it was not. The investigation was led by Detective Inspector Ray Gunner Kelly. For For fuck's sake! sake. Detective Ray Kelly centred his investigation on Raymond Ducky O'Connor, another high-profile Sydney crim, and guess what? A long-standing enemy of Lenny McPherson. An inquest into the shooting opened in December 1963, and Ducky O'Connor was called to give evidence. The inquest ended with the coroner finding that he was unable to recommend any prosecution. Yeah, probably because they put up the wrong freaking guy, right? Only days after the conclusion of the inquest into Pretty Boy's murder, itchy fucking trigger finger Lenny killed another rival. Lenny had a disagreement with standover man and greyhound trainer Charles Burke over a new illegal baccarat club in the city and also what kind of patent sweaters the greyhound should wear in winter. <laughs> Lenny did not fuck about. Burke was gunned down on the front lawn of his Ramwick home in the early hours of the morning of February the 10th, 1964. Investigations determined that the killer had hidden in nearby bushes and had fired 10 rifle shots into Burke from a distance, reloaded, then approached the dying man and fired a further 10 shots into him at close range. No one was ever charged over the killing, but multiple sources concur that there was no doubt that Lenny was a trigger man and that his BFF, Detective Kelly, had ensured that it would not be traced back to him. Lenny decided now was a time to keep a low profile and enjoy some well-deserved relaxation time with his new wife. Nah, that didn't happen. <laughs> Instead, he decided to kill some other bad guy that annoyed him. Sounds about right. Lenny's next target was murderer, safecracker and standover man, Robert Lawrence Jackie Steele. Ah, oh, save some names for the rest of us. Whose shooting and subsequent death made people think the pretty boy shooting was boring shit. <laughs> so on the evening of November 26, 1965, Jackie Steele was fired upon by four men who approached him in a car while he was walking down a quiet street in the suburb of Wallara in Sydney's inner east. He's probably on his way to the pub. I actually was thinking that he's probably on the way to the pub too. Or on the way home. From the pub. Yeah, there's a pub involved there (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a pub involved. He received multiple gunshot wounds, including a shotgun blast that ripped a massive five-inch hole in his gut. Built like a brick shithouse, (laughs) Jackie Steele was made of tougher stuff. He survived the gunshot wounds and managed to stagger 200 metres back to his flat and drag himself up three flights of stairs before collapsing. Jackie Steele was still conscious when he arrived at St Vinnie's Hospital where surgeons removed more than 40 shotgun pellets and bullet fragments from his body. From his hospital bed, Jackie Steele told reporters that the men who shot him surprised him by driving up to him in a car that resembled an official police vehicle and that they were all wearing hats of a style then much favoured by detectives. So what do you think, guys? Did Lenny use his corrupt police connections to gain the use of a real police vehicle and some sweet lids? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Sounds about right. What do you think, Cambo? Yeah. I reckon so. Well, the wounded Jackie survived in hospital for almost a month before finally dying from complications arising from his injuries. In that time, he briefly became a media star, 
Although one newspaper photographer discovered that Jackie, wary of another attempt on his life, was keeping a foiled I love you heart (laughs) tied to his bed, but he also had a loaded (laughs) shotgun under the sheets. That would be more handy in a crisis. Get well soon. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie Steele had incurred Lenny's wrath after trying to get a slice of his criminal empire, but Lenny's fat ego was apparently a factor too. A feature in the satirical Oz magazine titled The Oz Guide to Sydney's Underworld had chafed Lenny's bottom. Yep, he got a bit butthurt about it. Well, you can get an ointment for that, can't you? You could get several. You'd or- know, you'd know Cambo, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Is your butt okay? Butt happy. <laughs> <laughs> butt fuckalunga. <laughs> Oz Magazine editor Richard Neville compiled a top 20 list of Sydney gangsters. The number one spot was left empty, but in a reference to Lenny, the name Len was placed at number two, and Len was also described as a fence and a fizz gig. Oh, no, you don't want to be called a fizz gig. Well, he is a fizz gig. He is a fizz gig. That's true. This edition sold out in three days and a delighted Jackie Steele reportedly bought 20 copies, doing a little dance and making fun of the fact that Lenny was not at number one on the list of top criminals. Editor Richard Neville has since revealed that soon after the Underworld Guide was published, he received a visit at his Paddington home from Lenny himself. He claimed that he had come to assure himself that the Oz team were not part of a rival gang and to insist that he was not a fizz gig. No, I'm not a fizz gig. He doth protest too much. I know. Untouchable Lenny then masterminded the bloody and highly publicised Sydney gang wars of the late 1960s, during which he allegedly organised and occasionally took part in the murder of several key rivals. This included the sensational 1967 car bombing murder of brothel owner Joe Borg and the killing of his old enemy Ducky O'Connor. And what a killing that one was. So, guys, we actually found two different stories on how this went down, and they are both rather special. Although the first one has more cuss words. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) According to the Sydney Crime Museum, on the early morning of May 28, 1967, Lenny McPherson was having a drink in the fancy Latin Quarter nightclub where they served their beer on ice in champagne buckets. Oh, do you think that's what's going to happen at the Australian Podcast Awards tomorrow night? Well, they're bloody better. Oh, I want my beer on an ice bucket. Lenny and his crim buddies, Ratty Jack Clark and <laughs> Anthony Williams, were all quite pissed. At 3.20am, Ray Ducky O'Connor came into the crowded club. He still had the massive shits with Lenny for trying to frame him for the wedding day murder of Pretty Boy. How are you, cunt? He asked Lenny. All right, cunt. How are you? Lenny replied. Ducky pulled out a pistol and said, This is for you, cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Ratty Jack Clark quickly. (laughs) Come on, Tara. Keep it together. Ratty Jack Clark quickly sprang into action to defend Lenny and in the ensuing brouhaha, O'Connor was fatally shot in the head with his own gun. Poor old ducky. I know. Ten metres away sat Detective Sergeants Maurice Wilde and Brendan Whelan of the CIB, but nobody saw nothing. I didn't see nothing. I didn't. Did you see anything? Didn't see anything. No, No. I saw nothing. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) 
The other version goes, Lenny arranged to meet Ducky at the Latin Club under the pretext of nutting out a peace agreement. Ducky arrived in a thick overcoat, which he was using to conceal a weapon. Lenny wasn't armed, nor were his henchmen. The lights went out for under a minute. When they came back on, Ducky was lying dead on the floor in a pool of blood. It was proved that Ducky had been killed with his own gun. It's rumoured one of Lenny's cronies had surreptitiously lifted the gun from Ducky and handed it to Lenny, who used it to shoot him in the head. That's some sweet pickpocketing, isn't it? Yeah, that's some pro shit. Yeah, it really is. The gun was called the fastest gun in town because it had been dropped on the floor, but after it had been picked up by one of the two detectives who was sitting nearby, there wasn't a single fingerprint on it. And of course, nobody saw nothing. I didn't see anything. No? Cambo, no. did you see anything? I didn't see a fucking thing. <laughs> Can I swear? Am I allowed to swear <laughs> on, on this, this show? Not on this show. Oh, heavens no. I'll beep them. Yeah, I'm, let's wash Cambo's mouth out with soap. <laughs> <laughs> and vodka. And vodka. The murder of Ducky O'Connor further proved Lenny's reputation as king of the Sydney underworld. Now to the murder of nasty fucker Stuart John Regan. Regan was the leader of his own gang in the Sydney underworld during the 1960s and 1970s. He was known as the magician as he could make his enemies disappear without a trace. Ta-da! Ta-da! He used extreme violence and card tricks to (laughs) instill fear in others and claw his way to being one of the top bosses in King's Cross. Regan was a cunt waffle psychopath from a young age. He even speared a live possum with a pitchfork while at school. He was involved in illegal gambling, shady real estate dealings, multiple murders, and made a substantial income from collections from over 50 sex workers. That's not over 50 years old. (laughs) From sex workers who are over the age of 50. (laughs) From over 50 (laughs) sex workers. In May 1974, Regan did something that even disgusted the most hardened of tough nut criminals. He was babysitting for his girlfriend, Helen Scott Huey, when her three-year-old son, Carlos, mysteriously disappeared. Abracadabra. Boom, vagalanga. <laughs> Regan told police that at 4am he had driven into Taylor Square, Darlinghurst, to buy a newspaper. Who buys a fucking newspaper at 4am? Probably a child-killing magician. He said he left the car with Carlos asleep inside. When he returned, Carlos was gone. Police and members of the underworld were quite certain that Regan himself had killed little Carlos, but nothing could be proven. Regan's next blunder was the shooting of SP bookie Ratty Jack Clark. Ratty was having a quiet drink with a few friends when a 38 caliber bullet from a Smith & Wesson's smashed through a window and penetrated his skull. The shockwaves from Ratty Jack's death sounded throughout Sydney's underworld, where he had friends in high places, including Lenny. The feud between Regan and Ratty Jack had been brewing for some months. A short time before his death, Ratty had spat in Regan's face, calling him a child murderer. It's pretty much what everybody thought, but only Ratty had big enough nuts to say it to his face. So on August 23rd, 1974, with a schooner of beer in hand, 
Ratty fell slowly from his bar stool with a bullet in his head. One month later, at the age of 29, Regan bought his own stairway to heaven. At about 6pm on September 22, 1974, Regan was crossing the road to enter an illegal casino in Marrickville when he was ambushed by two gunmen who fired eight slugs into his body. They left him to die in the middle of the street. One of the gunmen was Lenny McPherson, avenging his mate, Raddy. By systematically eliminating his rivals, McPherson became one of the most powerful criminals in Australia. And by the end of the decade, with corrupt police prison officers, lawyers and politicians on his payroll, he was able to conduct his criminal activities with almost total impunity. Now let's talk how much money was being made by organised crime in Sydney in the mid-70s. It had an estimated turnover of $2.2 billion. For fun, let's just break that down. SP bookmaking, $1.4 billion. Illegal casino gambling, $650 million. Poker machine skimming, $90 million. Narcotics, a paltry $59 million. I guess that wasn't a lot in those days for drugs. The drugs is such a thing now. I yeah. think the drugs are a bigger thing now. A bigger for thing sure, now. In terms yeah. of percentages, yeah. With casino bribe payments to senior police and politicians running to some $1.4 million per annum, Organised crime was, by the late 1970s, an enterprise capable of wielding considerable influence in New South Wales. And Lenny was at the centre of it all. He had his finger on all the pies. And the pies were indifferent. (laughs) (laughs) Lenny, being the squirting, squealing little pig that he was, still acted as an informant to the New South Wales police. In this role, he had figured in one of Australia's biggest manhunts, the 1966 search for prison escapees Ronald Ryan and Peter John Walker. The two young men had fled to New South Wales after a daring escape from Melbourne's Pentridge Prison, during which prison guard George Hodson was killed. See episode 28 of True Crime Island to get the full story on Ronald Ryan. That's right. Boom fucker longer. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Ryan and Walker were eventually captured in the grounds of Concord Hospital in Sydney in a major operation led by, you'll never believe it, like guys, I'm not sure if you can guess right now, but you won't believe that it was Detective Detective Ray Ray Gunner Kelly. Lenny McPherson was approached by Ryan and Walker who sought his help to leave the country, but Lenny threw them under the bus by arranging a bogus meeting with them and tipping off the cops to its whereabouts. Lenny didn't show up to this meeting, but a hundred armed police officers did. Ryan was captured, subsequently convicted, and hanged for the murder of Hodson, becoming the last man in Australia to be executed. And all the evidence pointed to him actually being innocent. innocent. Yeah, I've heard from a very good episode of a true crime podcast that uh, he was not guilty. At least there was enough reasonable doubt that he shouldn't have been executed. Even the people of the day were trying hard to get the government to not execute Ryan, but they went ahead anyway. And we are in a civilised society, and if you have a listen to my episode, you'll see how the public feeling was at the time. Mm, Absolutely. Lenny's well-earned reputation for extreme brutality is further proven by this little incident. 
Lenny hated his mother and had been estranged from her for many years, but on her 70th birthday, he unexpectedly turned up at her flat carrying a live rabbit. He demanded to know why he had not been invited to her birthday party, and when she admitted that it was because of his criminal activities, the furious Lenny tore the rabbit's head off, threw the still-twitching body at her feet and screamed, Happy birthday, you old bitch! He then stormed off. Wow. Um, oh, and of course, let's not forget the wife beating. Oh, I'm not forgetting the wife beating. After accusing his first wife, Dawn, of having an affair, he tied one of her legs to a tree and the other to the back of his car, started the car, took up the slack and the ropes and threatened to tear her in half. Now, he was interrupted by a, a, a neighbour who said, what the fuck's going on here? And he went, nothing. So she... Wow, she came close. Yeah, yeah. Um, I might just want to point out that uh, he had numerous affairs the entire time, um, ever since he got out of Long Bay, like a few years into their marriage. He even had at least seven children to other women. I doubt that she was having an affair, even if she was. I mean, come on, pot calling the kettle a cunt, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Lenny McPherson is also believed to have facilitated the establishment of close contact between himself and other leading Australian criminals and members of the Chicago Mafia in the late 1960s, most notably through his infamous meeting in 1969 in Sydney with Mafia hitman Joseph Dan Tester and Tester's bodyguard Nick Giordano. On that occasion, Lenny even took Tester and Giordano kangaroo shooting with machine guns. <laughs> what? <laughs> the hell? The following year, Lenny visited Tester in Chicago. What a lovely montage of friendship building this would make. Ah, oh, I can just see it to some really fun song in a movie. Yeah. I don't know what song. Um, I come from a land down under. Perhaps, I don't know. <laughs> nice. <laughs> During the 1973 Moffat Royal Commission into Organised Crime in New South Wales, an informant alleged that Tester, as a representative of the mafia, was conspiring with Lenny and a poker machine company, Bally Manufacturing, to corner the New South Wales market. Tester was later exploded in 1981 in a car bomb near Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oh, you don't want to get exploded in a car bomb. If I want to get exploded in a car bomb, though, I want it to happen in Florida. (laughs) Yeah. Lenny is also thought to have been a significant figure in the development of the illegal heroin trade in Southeast Asia in the early 1970s. So, yeah, society thanks him for that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. In 1984, the gang wars had started and three major gangs had taken shape. McPherson's team, Nettie Smith's gang which was backed by Roger Rogerson and Barry McCann's boys, which included local police. During his reign, Lenny had survived three royal commissions and multiple coronial inquests into the murders he'd committed, but because of his relationship with corrupt police officers, he was Teflon and none of it stuck. But as time went on, his allies on the police force all moved on retired or died, leaving Lenny without the protection he'd enjoyed for 30 years. Good. Yeah, finally. The National Crime Authority was an organisation created to fight organised crime and they had Lenny firmly in their sights. They wanted to taste his squirting squealer blood. Good. 
They tried their best to create a case against him in the 90s for being a key figure in the organised crime world, but weren't able to obtain the evidence that they needed. However, after tapping his phones, they overheard Lenny conspiring to beat up and have the arm of a former business colleague broken. Lenny and some of his associates were involved in importing bourbon and whiskey into Australia. The brand that was worth the most at the time was Jim Bean. When one of Lenny's associates went rogue and organised the legal rights to distribute Jim Beam in Australia, Lenny was less than impressed, as it was a $26 million a year venture that he'd been cut out of. He paid $20,000 to have four men beat him up and break his arm. Not only were there taped conversations of Lenny organising the assault, but there were also tapes of him bragging and laughing about it to his mates. Lenny was finally arrested in 1993 at the age of 72 and fought with everything he had to try and stay out of prison. Considering his age, he was freaked out that if he got put behind bars, he might die there. And that was not how the formidable Lenny McPherson planned to shuffle off this mortal coil. In fact, the mere thought of it terrified the former hard man to the very core. So he did what anyone in this situation would do. He pretended to have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, What? Seriously, (laughs) dude is fucked off. For years, he kept up the charade of stumbling feebly into court and pretending not to even know his own name. (laughs) It's a common trait among sociopaths that when they lose their power, they try and flip the game and start playing the victim. Almost every time. Yeah. (sighs) Look at Ian now. He's doing it in court. Yeah. East Area Rapist, Uh uh-huh. At the age of 73, he was sentenced to four and a half years in jail. He stuck to his guns with his bullshit Alzheimer's disease ruse and instructed his legal team to seek appeals on the basis of compassionate grounds. All of his appeals were rejected, thank fuck. Exactly. I don't recall him showing a lot of compassion to anyone during his life, so why should he get it now? His final years in prison were not happy ones. His decades-long arrangement of dogging on his competitors to the cops meant he had enemies everywhere on the inside. Apparently he was just angry all the time. He was furious. He was, oh, fucking don't belong here. Yeah, he was furious. Yeah, he was so incredibly mad about it. And you know what? I'm glad. So, guys, rather than dying in the comfort of his own bed under the loving gaze of his family, as he had wished... Lenny McPherson died of a heart attack in Cessnock Jail on August 28, 1996, at the age of 75. He was buried on September the 3rd, 1996, at the Field of Mars Cemetery in Ryde, New South Wales. Well, I guess the king wasn't so in charge by the end, huh? You know, he was, he was untouchable for so many years. And, Decades. You know, he, he pretty much died of natural causes. Yeah, although the fact he was so angry with being in jail the whole time may have, like, you know, made the heart attack come on a little sooner. Yeah. But he had a good time while it lasted. Oh, and it was for a very long time as well. I'm really glad that Dawn got out of there at some point and didn't end up another casualty to this guy because he could have probably, like, killed her and gotten away with it because of his BFF, Ray Kelly. Yeah. So that's a lucky thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I reckon it is. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, little beauty. Ripper. Ripper beauty. Get on to it. Hey, baby. Boom, fuck a (laughs) lunga. So, Tara, 
What the hell is Ozias? I don't even know what it I is. I can't believe you still haven't figured it out, man. Uh, well, tell me what it is. Okay. Ozias are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one, fellas? Yeah. Yeah, you up for it, <laughs> you up for it Cambo? I'm up for anything tonight. Yeah, really okay. are, aren't you? <laughs> well, this is going to push the boundaries of that. A white-collar worker from Darwin in the Northern Territory has got himself a lasting reminder to be less of a reckless dickhead when he's on the piss. Stu, who didn't want to say what his last name was to avoid public humiliation and ruining his future employment prospects, swallowed $2.70 in coins at Monsoon's Party Bar on a Saturday night last year. His memories of the incident are quite blurry, but the 26-year-old said he woke up on Sunday morning feeling a little bit crook. I felt a little bit sick in the tummy. So he said, I went back to the bar and they said I should go to the hospital and the story slowly unraveled. The bar staff told Stu someone had dropped $2.70 in coins into a schooner of beer, which he then sculled, dirty pocket change and all. Yeah. Yeah, I know. An x-ray taken at Royal Darwin Hospital showed a 20-cent piece lodged near the base of his spine and a 50-cent piece in his esophagus. A $2 coin he swallowed as well had already made an exit through his butt. Our $2 coins are very small. Stu said he'd also managed to poo out a 20-cent piece without noticing. Oh, good for him. Yeah, go. <laughs> go, you big red 20-cent piece-shaped anus engine. But the 50-cent coin proved to be more of a problem. They're our biggest coin and they're a dodecagon shape, meaning that they have like 12 sides. Yeah, like a crazy-ass stop sign, right? In your crazy ass. He went into surgery to remove it from his esophagus, but by the time surgeons cut him open, the coin had moved. It eventually made its way out in the way nature intended. Anally. (laughs) (laughs) This is a nice Jew quote for you. I went fishing for turds. I had to get a pair of tongs out of my cousin's kitchen. I guess I should get her some new ones. Because <laughs> he hasn't yet. What? He went on to say, embarrassingly, I have to say it didn't hurt. I'm not too sure what that means. I guess you have a loose anus, Stu. I don't know. Yeah. Stu intends to frame the coin in question, which was minted in 1983, and hang it up on his bedroom wall. He says the experience won't put him off going to Monsoon's party bar, though. Oh, I might go back and sit in the pokies area with my mouth open, he said. Oh, make it rain. Yeah, make it rain in Stu's mouth and then all the way down to his colon. That's smart thinking, Stu. If you don't swallow and have a hazmat team ready to disinfect your mouth afterwards, coins are filthy. Seriously, what the hell, man? Well, yeah. Look, when I was six or seven years old, I used to put coins in my mouth. Well, of course you did. You probably didn't have a wallet. And I remember my dad saying to me, don't put it in your mouth. That could have been in a Chinaman's ear. That fascinated me for a while. Why would a Chinaman put that in his ear? And then I realised casual racism. Ah, rampant casual racism. It was a thing in the early 80s. Yes, it really was in this country. Um, So, yeah, nothing to do with, like, people of certain races enjoying having coins in their ears. No, I don't think that's true. Not even slightly. No. (laughs) So there you go. Oh, that was a corker. Why I've got a coin in my groin. (laughs) What did you think of that, Cambo? My God. I mean, I don't want any of his ass pennies then. 
Oh, yeah, he probably put them back. He only kept the 50 cent. The rest of the change is probably still in circulation. Oh, no. (laughs) So that was pretty fun hanging out. That's been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Cambo. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Oh, we have too. Yeah, same. And yeah. I think what, do, what do the listeners think? You should get on Facebook now and tell, tell us what you think. Yeah, more collaborations between True Crime Island and Bloody Murder. Well, next time we have to come to you and be on your show. Yes, Sydney. Uh-huh. We'll but do I'm, it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so we'd just like to take a moment to thank some people who've taken time out to write us some lovely reviews. Oh. Yeah. So thank you so much, Michael B. from Tennessee. He actually mentioned um, that he listens to us and, you know, he's um, he's into it. He says, I also enjoy the community of their Facebook group. Everybody is always welcoming and always provide awesome conversations to make the day go by with ease. I love hanging out there too. Oh, me too. All the time. We got another review from Megan Larson who said, along with other things, the Facebook group for the podcast is full of like-minded, snarky, funny yet kind people from all over the world couldn't have said it better myself again uh thank you also to rihanna one and christy fuller yeah you know the facebook group really has taken on a life of its own i don't think we it's us anymore no no it's not us it's the fam bam that's what it's called these days yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) and cambo's in it he's in it all the time oh did you notice the other day you you weighed in on something and someone was like oh my god is that the cambo Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was so cute. It is funny, yeah. <laughs> They're but kind of like, why would they talk to each other? What? <laughs> well, did you know, Tara, that what? I've uh, I've got Cambo in my house. He's even met my kids. He has now. You know, I have a yeah. hundred Facebook friends in common with Cambo. <laughs> and Karen Barnes, if you're listening, I'm in Barney's man cave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go, Karen. <laughs> I think we should just get a little um, a little story from Cambo about flying in because we're going to the awards tomorrow, which is really exciting. But Cambo told me told me a little something about what happened when he first got to the hotel that I think our listeners might enjoy. Well, I couldn't check in straight away. So they said, why don't you go for a walk? So I thought, oh, that's okay. I'll give you my phone number. Give me a call when the room's ready. So as I'm walking down the road down in Melbourne there, down La Trobe Street, all of a sudden... The elastic in my undies goes, and they go from being undies to nundies. <laughs> oh, no. And so it's like, oh, my God, the more I'm walking, the more they're going down the crack of my <laughs> Anyway, I thought I saw one of these tram things. We don't have them in Sydney yet, really. And I thought, oh, I'll take a picture. Anyway, I go to take a picture, and then the battery's flat. So here I am. I've got nundies. And I've no, got no phone. battery power. <laughs> I'm waiting on a phone call so I can go back to my room. So here I am waddling back to my room with my nundies on. But uh, in the end, we all met up, had a few beers, and it's been a great afternoon. It's been fantastic. It really has. Thanks so much for fully coming on board. Boom, fuckalanga. That's the one. Shit in a bucket. Get your hands off my dirty pillows. No, I won't. Well, if you're all doing catchphrases, I mean, come on. <laughs> Keep kicking against the pricks. Oh, we'll get oh. there, buddy. Oh, we'll, we'll get there. Get there. Hey, That's you, always at the end. You know what we should do, guys? What? We should thank all of our listeners for voting for us in the Australian Podcast <gasps> absolutely. Awards. Absolutely. We're there. Oh, sure. Thank it's, you so much. Yeah. We were absolutely amazed because your support, not only our two podcasts got in there, but also felons. Yeah. All three of us got in there. Oh, it's going to be great hanging out with Broad tomorrow too. It's going to be so awesome. 
So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. And if you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, which we're drinking right now, Mm -hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saravan. And I've been Cambo. And we just did some bloody murder. Yay! Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you want. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bumfuckalunga! Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Uh, this just feels so comfortable just hanging out. Yeah, it's we really good. Do this yeah. Again. yeah. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Oh, I know, oh. but I'm kind of proud no. of mine now. It's kind of my life's work. Oh, like, yeah. Elephant titties, necrophilia. I'd hate to see it in your, your browser. Well, you can't. No. You delete it. Oh, oh, what do you think is the gone? weirdest thing you've ever Googled for Crushless fishing and pants. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was just for life. Last week it was arm vagina. Arm vagina? You bought that up recently. Arm vagina? What is that? Oh, don't know. Really? Oh, okay, go for it. It's when... It's a vagina on an arm. When you take a photo of someone's underarm here and it looks like a vagina. Right. Can we do that later? And they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. If you want. I don't see why I need to be there for that. You could try and kiss your own elbow again. That was pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm going to do it every week from now on. So are we going to behave at the awards tomorrow? Oh, uh, hell no. <laughs> I'm uh, going to try. I'm really going to try until the end. And then, then we're going to drink gonna let all our hair the down. things. All the things. <laughs> God, I wish you could be there too, listeners. Oh, I wish you could. Yeah. Hey, baby. Boom, fuck, longer. <laughs> hey, baby. Don't you two assholes getting up on me just because you've got dicks. <laughs> oh, we will. Ugh. You should see my gooch. I don't need to see that. Did you press it? Oh, stop it with your gooch talk. Let's finish this episode. Uh, Wet your whistle. Sit on it, Barney. Hey, thanks for that uh, cock advice before about how, (laughs) you know, about the wee thing, you know, just give your prostate a bit of a, a, how's your father (sighs) on your undercarriage? Just push up behind the ball sack. Yeah, the gooch. You shake. Yeah. Whereas normally the last one will always end up in the undies. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, dry as a dead dingo's donger. Ah, uh, well. You and do that, know most of our listeners are female, right? And that, <laughs> and that was Cambo Ford's personal hygiene tips. <laughs> I got it on Reddit. <laughs> I found it on Reddit. Well, it must be true then. Oh, oh yeah, I did. Hey, next time I've got to go for a whiz, maybe come in with me and just help me. <laughs> I'll show you. I'll yeah, show you show me. It's the peace oh, spot. Oh, you're going to have a little sword fight, are you, fellas? Oh, you know. that spot. Okay. It outlined their plan to avoid prosecution, described the scheme to fabricate alligate allegies. Fabricate alligator. Alligator. Handbag eyes. Cunt. <laughs> I'm helping. <laughs> You're helping so much. <laughs>